welcome everyone in this new episode of Let's Talk AI. I'm super happy to be here today with Apurva Josie. Apurva, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for asking, Thomas. I was struggling during this introduction. Anyway, I'm super happy to have you on the show. I have many questions. Um, so uh, for everyone who's tuning in, Let's Talk AI, a podcast where we deep dive about data and AI with experts in long format content. Uh, and so if you're new to the show, welcome. And uh, if you've already watched some episodes uh, before, welcome back. Today we're with Apurva. Um, so Apurva, maybe for the people who might not know you, could you introduce yourself in a few words? Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm Apurva. I joined on my new job as an AI or machine learning developer advocate at MongoDB literally like two weeks ago. Prior to that, I was at Elasticsearch uh, working uh, in cybersecurity, basically applying machine learning to things like malware and ransomware detection. And um, before that, I was at another security vendor called FireEye. Uh, on their email security team, uh, applying machine learning to problems like phishing detection, business email compromise. So yeah, kind of spent five and a half-ish years at the intersection of AI and cybersecurity. And before that, I was in grad school. So yeah, that's <laughs> Awesome. Thanks for the retrospective. I was about to ask you um, on that. So um, that's perfect. Uh, so maybe... If you can share a bit more with us what you've been interested in lately in the field. So congratulations, first of all, for your new position. Um, what are you most interested in uh, right now? Like, uh, I always like to ask this question, like, what is the state of the art of Apurva? So what is your um, uh, own like personal state of the art? What are you up to these days? What are you interested in? And, and what kind of problems are you working on, if I may ask? Sure. I think um, for me personally, I think it's a little bit of an existential question almost, <laughs> but I've been thinking about just like, hey, like, uh, what do I like to do? What do I enjoy? That kind of thing lately. And I think what I've discovered so far is just that I'm someone who likes to learn new things. Uh, I've never been someone who knew from the get go what my calling was or it's not something I figured out early on. So yeah, my whole life so far has kind of been a series of me trying to um, just trying different things in search of that one thing that I'm truly passionate about. But I guess, you know what, like maybe it's not just that one thing for me. Maybe I enjoy doing different things and maybe that's what I thrive on. Uh, and that's kind of worked well for me so far. Like work-wise, it's made me someone who can... Um, adapt to the changing needs of organizations that I'm part of or feel confident enough to make big career pivots that I've made in the past. And yeah, outside of work, I think this attitude has also exposed me to hobbies that I've really come, come to enjoy. So yeah, that's kind of how I approach life. But uh, in terms of AI and machine learning these days, I'm, I think I'm just playing catch up a little bit, like being in AI and cybersecurity, uh, being a data scientist specifically, it used to be more like, here's a problem, find the best solution to, um, to, the, to solve that problem, right? And sometimes mm -hmm. um, the reality of it is, when, especially in production, like the state of the art models might not be the best fit because of like latency concerns, size, or what are the constraints of your system might be. So 
uh, it's definitely been a pretty fundamental shift in that sense, moving to this uh, developer advocate role. Here, it's more like, here are the tools. And uh, especially in the field right now, the tools are just changing every day. So it's like, here is this constantly changing set of tools. What are the different problems that you can apply it to? Uh, so yeah, it's just been a lot of um, just reading up about everything that's coming out and um, seeing what use cases developers and customers at MongoDB are asking for. Um, sorry if I'm just going off on a rant, but I think the two main things that I'm super excited about right now have been semantic routing, which came out like two weeks ago, probably. And um, what's the other thing? I think just mixture of experts, that's something that I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing how those two evolve. Hmm. Can you share a bit more about the first one, the one that came a few weeks? How was it? How was it called? Uh, so it's called semantic routing. And okay. the basic idea there is basically uh, as we are moving towards like agentic AI systems, uh, it gives them the ability to um, semantically decide which uh, functions or which um, actions to take. So basically you give agents a mapping of example queries and associated actions that the agents should take. So whenever a user um, queries that agent, it will determine which route or action to take based on the query semantic similarity to these example queries. And I think this could really be uh, a game changer for agentic AI. Hmm. Does that involve um, fine-tuning models? Uh, like when, when, like when you say it just knows based on like the examples it is gave, is it like um, purely like a system? Like is is it a knowledge graph behind? Like how do you feed it the examples, or is it like a fine-tuned model that you feed it all the examples in different path, and then it learns like if it goes on one path? Or, do you have insights? Just yeah, curious. so uh, it's right now it's this Python library that James Briggs, uh, he is um, a dev advocate at Pinecone, and I think he's starting his own thing, but uh, it's a library that he created. I was like just roughly trying to understand the working of how he's creating semantic routes, and it's more applying these concepts of semantic search, uh, like cosine similarity. Mm -hmm. I don't know. He's using a few other similarity metrics that I couldn't. Uh, I didn't get too deep into yet, but yeah, like no fine tuning as such, but just using semantic search concepts and applying that to um, this problem. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I'm curious. I look into it. Um, For sure. um, all right, so that's very interesting. I'll come back to that. I will come back to um, your um, background in cybersecurity. I'm super curious to discuss that with you. Uh, I would like maybe to jump further in the past uh, just for a few moments. So sure. uh, I think you're um, electronical engineer. Is that correct? Yeah, so electrical and communication engineering, it was called. And then in grad school, it was called computer engineering. But yeah, okay, sort of similar. And so... Okay, interesting. And so how did you get into data and AI? Uh, and why did you get there? Uh, and like, um, did the, did your studies impact it, um, you working in the field? Or like, how, how did everything happen? 
Sure. So let's see. Uh, like you mentioned, I have a background in electrical engineering, which funny story I chose as my uh, major for my bachelor's degree because I was like actually really scared of coding back then. I started with Java in high school, so you can imagine why. So yeah, I chose electrical engineering as my major, spent four years studying that during my bachelor's program. And then um, I still wanted to give it a shot to see if it's really for me. So I applied to a master's in computer engineering um, and I still, yeah, trying to give electronics a shot. But a year into that is when I kind of realized that that's just not something I'm passionate about. And um, I'd done all my required electives. I had uh, a few more electives that I could take. I also had a nine-month thesis that I could do in whatever topic I wanted to. So, yeah, as, and I think machine learning, I guess, seven years ago was kind of the hot thing, and it was just up and coming, or at least I had just heard of it. So I took a course uh, in the computer science department, and I'm like, hey, like, this is fun. And uh, I, that was kind of around the time when I had to choose a topic for my thesis. So I approached a professor in uh, business analytics. So I ended up working on a project uh, that was applying data science to a real world business problem, a real data set that they had. Um, so yeah, I think that, that really kind of, um, shifted things for me like I found data was much more intuitive to work with and even that first project uh, really got me interested because I think the task was sentiment analysis and uh, I was working with actual user data so that human component of it is something that I really enjoyed and then um, out of grad school I was just with my very limited data science knowledge I'm like anyone who's willing to give me a shot I'll take it uh, and it happened to be a security company. So I spent uh, my next two years applying my very nascent data science knowledge to problems in email security. And I think that job is when I really uh, realized that machine learning had the potential for very real world impact, especially in um, the security space. Like pretty much everything happens online these days. Everyone uses emails. We all have laptops, mobile phones. So the scale of cybersecurity is like truly massive. And that's kind of what makes it a perfect fit for machine learning and AI. So yeah, I really enjoyed uh, being in that field. Hmm. Awesome. So interesting background. And I'm super, I'd love to ask more about the um, cybersecurity space. Uh, I'm not super familiar with it. So could you maybe share um, like what are like the main areas that you identified in the space and and like, yeah, main areas, main use cases, like maybe if you want to share some experiences, what you've seen, some very impactful use cases in the cybersecurity or the importance of having implementing AI and, and, and ML. Um, sure on this space? Yeah, interesting question. Like I can, I definitely can't speak for all of cybersecurity. Like my experience has been like two in two areas, right? Uh, there was email security. So things like phishing, business mm -hmm. email compromise, malicious URLs. Then I moved into the endpoint space. So that's where malware 
and ransomware comes into the picture. Ransomware probably very relevant to uh, enterprises because that's uh, the kind of attacks that are most frequent. Then at least on my previous job, they started moving more into the SIM and XDR space. So for those of you who aren't familiar with what, what a SIM is, it's just basically an uh, event management system. So logs from um, anything that, for example, you're doing on your laptop, any processes that you're running, any network activity, file activity, all that gets logged and it's sent to a central system. And um, that's kind of where a security analyst would come to um, that UI and then they would figure out like, hey, like, start investigating if something malicious is happening in their environment. So my most recent thing was um, coming up with machine learning techniques to optimize that process of make, make it easier for analyze, uh, analysts to investigate attacks, basically. So um, one of the most interesting concepts, there was something called user and entity behavior analytics. So the concept there, and entity here being any distinct entity in the digital landscape, right? So it can be a user, a system, a device, or even a piece of software. And the idea here is to look at uh, complex cyber attacks through a behavioral lens, attacks like data exfiltration, lateral movement. Um, so to give you an example, say an attacker has gained a foothold on an employee's system. Now, for this attacker to move through the organization's network, they're probably going to have to do certain actions that this uh, user that they have compromised wouldn't typically do, right? Like accessing uh, systems that the user typically doesn't access, uh, calling out to IP addresses that they typically don't talk to. So we were using uh, machine learning, like specifically anomaly detection to identify mm -hmm. these anomalous patterns in different aspects of the entity's behavior. And all of these signals together make for, uh, the hope was that all of these signals together would make for a stronger signal of a larger sophisticated attack. So that was super interesting. I'll stop there to see if you had uh, a follow-up. How many follow-ups? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. And so when you say, all right, I'm curious about the scale of the data uh, that needs to be managed because I think one one interesting things about your experiences is that you are um, you've always been building end to end the products that you were yeah. working on. So you were not only just building the models and training them and so on, but also like putting them in productions and uh, monitoring and so on. So I think that can be super interesting to discuss. Uh, so curiosity. Um, when we think about not asking to reveal any confidential data or anything, but in terms of when we analyze logs and mm -hmm. when we work with logs, what order of magnitude are we talking about in terms of volumes of data? Just to like have an idea of sure. um, like the architecture that is required. And maybe if you want to uh, take it from there and maybe take us through like the the volume, how would you go about a use case like this? And uh, and if you have some insights that we can learn from. Sure. Um, let's see. Um, I think I have two data points. Um, one that's probably relevant here is uh, we are talking about user and entity behavior analytics, right? And you let's look at 
use the user entity. So um, in a user session, a session being the period from a user logging in to log out, you can expect anywhere between a few hundreds to a million events, depending on how long the user is logged in. And that's, uh, we are basically tracking that session, right? So um, think about per user, per session, say they're, they have about, I don't know, 100 sessions a week. Um, and then depending on how many uh, users there are in that organization, I don't know, I'm a little blanking on the mental math right now, but that's kind of the scale we are looking at. Say uh, a million, the cap could be like a million events per session, say 150 sessions per week. And uh, you have, I don't know, 5,000 employees in an organization. So that's kind of the scale we are looking at. Uh, Email was a little different. Um, Yesterday, I was just looking up some stats for how many emails are sent around the globe. It's for 2023, it's somewhere around 360 billion emails that are sent around. And if you look at uh, some of the leading vendors like Gmail, Outlook, then they probably have the largest market share in terms of email exchanges. And then uh, when it comes to looking at malicious URLs, you can have multiple URLs embedded into each email. So at least a few billions, a few uh, few to 100 billion is kind of the scale we are looking at, whether it's endpoint or uh, emails. Um, Hmm. So that's the scale. Uh, what's the other question you had? Yeah, the, the question is, and I'll add one in between. Sure. So, because before you start building any model and training any things, when you're working hand to hand with the analyst that's going to analyze the logs, what you want is like to find patterns and see if like it's not coming from a bigger malicious attack, as you said. So, so all those. Uh, all those, all this data is not free, of course. So it needs right. to go somewhere. Right. Uh, and billions of rows of users. I know that it is um, expensive. It always depends on like how big the bank account is, <laughs> because right. uh, um, so that 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 changes things. But that but being then said, storage is cheap. Like cloud storage, right? Storage is the uh, something like AWS S3. We were an AWS house at my first job and storage is cheap. Like that's uh, not the big concern. It's more at query time. Like you get charged for how many, um, how much data you're querying or how long yeah. your queries take. So that's where um, the costs go up. Like storage is not the biggest problem. But right. Yeah, so I would assume that once you have all the data in one place and it comes every day. So I would assume that you would take a sample from this data just to work with and like train and prepare. Yeah. How do you go about that process of like selecting the random sample and like how big, because if you're like saying a hundred billion of rows, the sample needs to be like maybe 10% of this. Do you have some insights on that? Like, how do you go about uh, choosing the sample to start working with uh, before like training a model and and finding uh, uh, trends patterns? Let's see. Uh, I think that my very first malicious URL detection uh, is a pretty cohesive or yeah, cohesive use case case to talk about. Um, So there, 
first thing i think it depends on what the requirements of the system are right like what what's the goal of the model like are we using right. it to block malicious urls are we using right. it for downsampling or just filtering like that goal kind of changes things then mostly in production systems you have other constraints too like you we need the model to be a certain size we need it to uh, a verdict to be delivered in a certain time frame uh, then there's that trade off between what the false positive and false negative rates can be um like in my case we yeah like without going into numbers like you, you don't want too many fps because people aren't uh, going to be happy if you block legitimate emails you don't want to make false negatives because people get really mad when they get fished so uh, there's yeah. that trade off to maintain but coming back to at least for that model let's walk through that example right like the size of the model really uh, kind of constrains how many um, how much you can have in in your training data set because that is directly related to how big uh, your model is going to be say for example i i went with a tree based model because based on my experiments that what that's what ended up performing the best so i um went back in time to say over 6 months of data those queries were a little expensive but that was the cost to be paid if you want to uh train a model but um yeah went with over the last 6 months of data um the interesting thing about cybersecurity problems is also the fact that the threat landscape changes so rapidly so say today uh, an attacker launches a phishing campaign he's very likely not going to keep doing the same pattern they're going to change their techniques tactics pretty quickly so even 6 months of data is a long time like you would going back just 3 months or even a month would probably probably have been an, enough in hindsight because um but yeah like if you have the bandwidth then go back to whatever uh period in time that you can and then i think the next big one is uh making sure that you have a good representation of the landscape right in my case i wanted to have a good representation of all kinds of urls and patterns that we are seeing because i was building a lexical mod- model mm. so there was a mm-hmm. lot of like just deduplication to make sure that i'm not having a uh, keying in on some patterns more than others so um that was a pretty big consideration and yeah like after that fps and fns became uh, the big thing when it came to evaluation right right so here you 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 go to um best frame of data science is the confusion matrix and you just like yeah. uh, is a recall the precision and the, and uh, and the accuracy and you try to uh, to find like the the most optimum uh, optimal awesome uh, thanks a lot for sharing that's uh, very interesting um so you mentioned different um different patterns Mm-hmm. what so in those specific cybers uh, in those specific um use cases that you mentioned uh, in cybersecurity in general like what does a how does a pattern look like why do i ask because as i haven't been in like the cybersecurity and and i i haven't an in-depth background of um, just like clear concepts i have i have some bases I have some fundamentals sure. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, if you can maybe share like what patterns look like and sure. and in general maybe like what are companies looking out for uh, because uh, as we all know correct me uh, 
if you if you have a if you have a malware um, that is powerful enough that it spreads into into your systems and so on, then you can get yourself locked out of your company and it's game over. Or or you pay and maybe they'll uh, right. and maybe yeah. they'll uh, they'll give you back your uh, your your home. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> right. uh, correct me, yeah, yeah. run somewhere. Sorry, um, and uh, so. Yeah, can you share about that? The like the patterns in general, and like what the industry is mainly looking at. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, so this let's switch back to uh, the malware and ransomware space, right? And right. Uh, I think that's where user and entity behavior analytics is kind of becoming pretty much uh, table stakes. Like most vendors who are in the endpoint space are probably, well, at least sim space are probably moving towards that. Um, so, okay, taking a step back, right? Like cybersecurity in general, and even today, I think writing rules and heuristics is a pretty big part of it because, Mm -hmm. uh, what rules bring to the table is being able to detect on very specific patterns of, uh, how malware behaves. Like uh, there's different malware and ransomware families, and each of them have, uh, different tactics and procedures as to how they uh, attack a system. So that's where rules come into play. They, um, yeah, they try to keen on these specific behaviors of different kinds of malware. But where machine learning can help is uh, generalizing over a large range of behaviors, right? So I think when uh, the thing that's, uh, what a lot of companies are trying to do today is trying to compare, trying to combine results from machine learning models with rules to get a good mix of um, detecting these general behaviors and then bringing in rules to uh, detect targeted attacks. So what that looks like is um, when I was talking about user entity behavior analytics, right? We are looking at general behaviors like anomalous uh, logins or anomalous file, large uh, file transfers or activity at different times in a day, users talking to um, IP addresses that they don't usually talk to. All these are pretty generic signals. But then when you combine uh, a certain number of these generic signals with these very specific rules, now you can start saying things like, okay, this user took these very specific set of actions and these are kind of indicative of a larger attack like data exfiltration or lateral movement, all of which have, um, there's a framework called MITRE attack, which kind of lays out what the different stages of these larger attacks look like. So once you have all these different signals, then you can start quantifying what uh, all these signals might be representing, like which larger attack are they representing, that kind of thing. So I think that's where most companies are moving, like rules are definitely uh, a thing, but you heavily using machine learning models for decision support to, uh, yeah, Hmm. work with those rules. Awesome. Yeah, super interesting. We understand better the security space. Um, We've talked a little bit about production uh, and more things. Um, If I'm not mistaken, you've you've been doing some speaking lately in public, so I'd love to... uh, to ask you about that, like how did you end up uh, speaking publicly um, about topics? What are you discussing? And like uh, the overall experience of uh, 
like speaking of a, a specific subject and and to an audience and having feedback like how does that feel how does that make you better and so on let's see i think speaking i, I don't want to say that speaking during covid looked a little different a lot of it was very virtual so uh, in terms of getting feedback in person things look pretty different i didn't get as much of that but uh, after covid the few conferences that i did attend it was really nice to uh, just meet people and see them come and validate your work and in the sense that hey this is um, I also have a similar problem. I really liked your approach and asking you questions about your approach itself that kind of gives you, uh, you have these aha moments where you're like, hmm, that's an interesting thought. I should probably go back and try it. But also that it's very rewarding to feel that, um, feel like you, this person will also probably go and try something that they took away from your presentation. So that's something I find really rewarding. And I think it's a natural extension of, uh, it was a natural extension of my work as a data scientist because I'm already working on this thing. So uh, it's as long as you, you've you gone through the whole process, basically. Mm -hmm. So then it's a matter of putting that down on paper or creating an abstract to submit at a conference. So yeah, it's I, I really used to enjoy doing that as well uh, because yeah, that validation and that feeling of, uh, okay, I'm making an impact in a way I really enjoyed that, uh, which is why this transition to uh, a dev advocate role was also felt kind of natural. And yeah, I'm really, really excited to see how it goes. Awesome. I'm curious to, uh, I would like to ask you about uh, your advocate role, also about Elasticsearch, career in general. Um, what are like the main topics that you discussed or um, talked about in, in conferences after COVID or in COVID, during COVID? At Elastic, it was it was a bunch of things. Like I did things on how to solve a problem end to end using Elasticsearch and machine learning. Then there were more security and machine learning use cases. Like, hey, this for example, there was uh, yeah, it was a lot of end to end kind of stuff uh, that was machine learning and security related. Like, hey, here's a security problem, and this is how we solved it using machine learning. So walking people through the entire pipeline of uh, how we created the features, what features we use, what models we used, uh, how we evaluated it, what the performance looked like. And yeah, how a lot of it was, all, we also tried to put our code, I think, for people, code and models for people to use. And so it was also like, hey, this is how you can um, do it yourself as well, which I think people really enjoy too. It's they like to learn about what you did, but also when they can take your code and models uh, and get up and running with it. I think people really enjoy that, which is why like open source is becoming such a big thing right now. Yeah, I feel like open source is really a way to just um, overgive so that then you can test if something is working or not. And it is a great way to just um, help out the community. And yeah. so going through the process of open sourcing the models and the codes that you were, um, that were working on, um, like how, how is this process? Like before conferences, are you like focused on 
okay, this is going to be the repo that we're going to share. We need to um, work. Like, how, how does that how does that work? Like this putting in the in the pipeline. Okay, we'll have this conference. We'll talk about that, but we'll also provide free things for the community and and the other companies to to use and and, and play with. How, how does that look like? So I think Elasticsearch was really good in the sense that the company itself had a pretty big focus on open source, right? So a lot of their repos are open source. So, um, for example, each time I had to put, we had to put a model into uh, our security solution that mm. needed to go into a public repo. So mm. once it's in a public repo, then everyone can see what we've done uh it's right there for people to use. Right. Like we also build build it into the UI and the application itself, but like the just the raw code is right there for people to use. And um, like for times when it didn't fit into an elastic product as such, um, that's when I think you need, there's like some legal concerns that come into play as to like, okay, can we open source this repo? What are the requirements? Which I... I personally didn't have to get into because yeah, like most of my stuff just ended up being in public repos. So then when it comes to conference talks, you don't have to do uh, anything new. It's already there. You just, it's just a matter of linking to the right repo. Hmm. Awesome. And does that like, does your um, GitHub username appear in the code base of, uh, of Elasticsearch? How does that work? Yeah. So it appears on the contributors. So if mm. someone can click into um, the repo, they'll see me as a contributor, specifically if they if they know what they're looking for, like mm -hmm. a package, if you will. Uh, if they know that that's the package they want, then it shows that I've, I'm the one who's committed to it. Um, yeah. Awesome. And you mentioned that uh, in your university, you didn't, or before maybe, uh, but in you... you you had um, a Java course, if I'm correct, <laughs> and you didn't like it. And yeah. uh, some years later, um, you you have your code in in one of the biggest uh, open source code base, uh, code base, I would say. Like, I mean, to my perspective, Elasticsearch is uh, huge in the field and in the open sourcing, like we mentioned. Um, so how is your relationship with coding today? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> but um, let's see. I think it's still a work in progress for me. Like I, I feel like I've come a long way. Um, Python really helped. Like it was, um, it was really easy to pick that up. So when I, like Java was just like okay, like <laughs> I just do not enjoy this. And then when I got into electrical engineering, there were tools like MATLAB, which were more like mathematical programming. But when I, especially when I moved into data science and machine learning is when I realized like you can still do some of that basic stuff in MATLAB, but I had a friend, uh, one of my friends uh, from grad school, like if he's watching, then he'll know who I'm pointing to, but he's just like, okay, you need to stop using MATLAB. You need to learn Python now. So that's when during my thesis, I started learning Python. And I think for me, the biggest uh, confidence boost has been just seeing myself doing these things end to end, right? Like I've uh, contributed to production code, uh, seeing that people are actually benefiting from 
models that I've written, I've researched. Um, so yeah, I think this concept of like presenting my work at conferences and blogs is a huge uh, way for me to get that confidence boost and feel like, okay, like I can do this too. Like mm. there's a, that's a big part of it. Awesome. And how did you get like your best practices uh, at coding? Like, was it like watching more code? Like for example, Mm, at elastic shirts you were looking at the code of others and it was like very qualitative uh, i mean of a very good quality so so then it inspired you in like your own writing and approaching like how you're going to write things or was it was it just like figuring out things after putting like end-to-end -end solutions in production uh and just figuring it out like watching do you have some insights on that in terms of like what helped sure uh Code reviews are a big thing, right? Like, especially when you're pushing code to production, there is going to be a pre-rigorous uh, code review process. So I think that helped me a lot. Uh, like when I was just starting off, um, like my, like the structuring of my code was bad Look, or I would uh, use anti-patterns that my reviewers pointed out. So like over the years and even now, like whenever I submit, code for review I always every once in a while they'll be like oh wow like I didn't know about that or you you're, you're on an older version and something new has come in a newer Python version and someone will point that out to you so yeah I think code reviews have been a big way of learning uh, best practices or like new developments in um, the language that's really been it and yeah like If you need to add to a code base, then you're also going to spend the time uh, seeing what's already written, right? So just spending more, uh, yeah, time reviewing and digging into other people's code has been really helpful as well. Awesome. That's insightful. Uh, okay, career-wise, I'd like to, to ask you about some... Uh, Some advices for everyone who is listening. Um, you have you've had very interesting experiences. Um, you just started a new position uh, as um, Dev at um, Devrel. May I say Devrel, right? It's um, yeah. developer advocate um, at MongoDB before Elasticsearch. Like, what are like the main moments uh, in your career uh, about? Um, Maybe not the main moment, but like, how do you approach uh, interviews, um, um, processes in general, and uh, like finding out uh, jobs? Do you have tips and lessons? Uh, I, I believe that you have a, a very specific <laughs> point of view on this subject, but I'm curious for you to, to share if you can. I kind of do, and it's probably going to be an unpopular point of view, but I hope it resonates with uh, some folks. So here's the thing, like when um, I started um, looking for my first job, right? I sent out like an enormous number of applications, just any job posting I saw. I think I ended up with like 400 applications, just like shooting in the dark. I tried to um, use my network of referrals, which is what ended up converting into actual interviews. So I think that's like tip number one, if you have referrals, like, definitely like heavily keen on that uh, network, having a good network of people who can vouch for you and actually like provide actionable 
help when it comes to interviewing super important. So building that, taking that time to build uh, that trust and that network of people is very important. But um, so yeah, going back to my first job, right? Like back then my mindset was more like, hey, I am the one who is trying to make this career pivot. I'm the one who has just nine months of experience. So realistically, like that, I'm not going to be the first choice for people looking to hire data scientists. So back then my mentality was like anything, anyone who'll give me a shot, I'll take it. But fast forward to now with about five and a half years of experience, right? Like I know something, I I know stuff. Like I uh, shouldn't be uh, put through the rigmarole of lead code, hacker rank. Like you can test for my basic coding abilities, uh, but there needs to be a bigger focus on uh, my AI machine learning knowledge, how I apply it to different problems, uh, just more like how I problem solve in that sense. Like coding, I can. I think people need to trust that you can get better at it as long as you have... Uh, a good sense of best practices and like the basic stuff figured out. So um, like this time when I changed jobs, I decided that I'm not going to spend uh, all my free time grinding lead code, hacker rank. I'll do enough to just like brush up on the basics, but I'm going to uh, make use of my network, land those interviews and just like be myself and go with whatever knowledge I have. And if that's not enough, then too bad. And yeah, that's kind of, that was my approach this time. And um, yeah, people who can see that I have what it takes are the ones I want to work with too. Like if you can see that I can, I can add value to your organization, then it's also not worth my time. Yeah. Yeah. And with your years at Elasticsearch also, you have like, uh, coding open sourced in one of the biggest libraries there is so yeah i think uh, <laughs> i think asking you to like do some algorithm in, in a hacker rank test um is a bit uh weird like um, i do understand that for larger companies it's uh they need some sort of filtering framework they uh, like people don't have the time to interview every single person that comes through the pipeline but and again, like, I don't know what the best way to do this is. I don't want to, like, totally trash existing systems. But I definitely think there are uh, better ways to evaluate people. Or at least not putting all eggs in one basket, right? Like, sure, you uh, put them through a coding interview. Maybe it wasn't great. But I think that interview needs to be a part of other things that you ask candidates to do. It can be like, okay, this or nothing. Hmm. Makes sense. Awesome. Uh, I think I'd like to come back uh, very quickly just because uh, I think it's very valuable for everyone who's listening. But how many um, how many job interviews did you did you like um, applied for? Uh, did you say that it was like what was the number you said when I think you? My first job it was almost four hundred applications. Like every, any free time I had outside of my thesis writing or coursework was just spent yeah. applying to jobs. Awesome. So that's okay. I want you just to come back on that because I feel like you should something very interesting here because maybe for like entry level job, um, 
a lot of the time we can hear like uh like yeah it's it's complicated uh, no one is like recruiting and so on and yes there are those things but but are you sending 400 uh, applications for like your entry jobs probably not for a lot of people there are of course exceptions but i just wanted to come back to the priorities that you said which is like okay do i have anyone who can make a referral in my network maybe those are like two or three people only but that's that that's the yeah like most likely things to like go somewhere and then i like linkedin messages are the best for that and like counting hundreds like uh, uh, alex romozzi would say um <laughs> but uh so like this is i believe very very important um if you're really looking to to uh, for a position and, and a job and so on and um and then yeah applications normal applications uh, to be fair I, if i were to apply i wouldn't even apply through like website pages of the companies like i wouldn't even do it except yeah. if i were like trying to um i don't know what would you do then just curious i would just i would just write to anyone in the companies that i'm interested in asking Fair. for uh like how 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 does that work like Makes okay sense. you know what exactly what i would do i would ask to for example um Nair in mongo um so if i were to uh, if i were interested to go at mongodb Uh, I would like write to you and say, um, "Hey, how about you as well? Um, right. Congratulations for the for the new position. <laughs> um, I'm actually in the process of blah blah blah. Would you have some tips for me, or would you have like 10 minutes for me so that I can ask you some tips? And after I've asked you all the tips that I could, like in terms of like me becoming better into preparing processes for interviews." And so on. I would ask you: Do you know if any processes are ongoing in the companies, in, like based on what we discussed? Right. And just based on that answer, if there is and there is a link, great. If not, I, I just gained some knowledge. And I right. believe that I would scale that to like hundreds and hundreds. And so, and so then you have such you have such a, a big network. You have like many things that. It, it just can't work if you just like do hundreds of that it's just you're just asking for people to talk about themselves their and career. people don't really like at least i've noticed that uh like cold messaging hasn't worked for me like if they don't know me then they're not gonna respond and i think that's like when that's the thing when you are in need you wish that they would do that but when tables are turned uh if the situation is reversed, then I'm probably not going to reply to every cold message that comes my way too. Like it's just unreasonable yeah. to expect. Exactly. Yeah. Makes sense. That being said, I believe that if uh, we do in hundreds, like let's say you receive a message and I uh, like studied your profile and I like, why wow, super interesting. You studied uh, electrical engineering. I studied electrical engineering. Uh, so like we have something in common. And I'm uh, very impressed about your career path. And I would love to ask you no more than five minutes or 10 minutes, some questions just for guidance. You might be more likely to like help that person out because you felt that you were in the position. Would that be correct? I think so. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing. It's a very personal thing, right? Like if, um, yeah, depends on how, um, what your schedule looks like 
depends on what your experiences have been. If your experiences have been like, hmm, like uh, I have cold messages, message people, no one has helped me, so I'm not going to help anybody. Like, it depends mm. on what someone's perspective might be. Mm. Like, I personally, um, I get asked for referrals all the time. Like, I, I, yeah. most times I try to take the time to at least look at their resume maybe and see if I want to refer this person. And if it's in my capacity, then... I do it, but sometimes it's just like I'm not looking at LinkedIn. I'm not checking it, so I might yeah. miss messages that come my way. So yeah, I think there's a lot of factors there, which is why I kind of try to focus on people who I know. So even this time during my job hunt, one of the first exercises I did was just build a spreadsheet of people who I know and mm. uh, what my evalu- evaluation of whether or not they would be willing to support me looks like. And uh-huh. yeah, I think that's where you need to be realistic too. Like, okay, I kind of know this person, but are they really going to go that extra mile to mm. uh, help me out? Hmm. A- and then there's also that you don't want to give people the impression that, um, not give people the impression, I guess you need to build a kind of relationship where people don't feel like it's just a one-way street, right? Mm. You need to um, show them that there's something you can do for them as well. Like if it's a, for example, if it's someone who's senior, then they, maybe you can assume that they like to mentor people or um, yeah, maybe that's a rewarding thing for them. And then you kind of give them that opportunity for them to mentor somebody um, that kind of thing. So yeah, I think there's mm. always that that that's kind of tricky too, like not making people feel like they're being used, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. And and I feel like when you say, yeah, in your inbox, I can I can only imagine like uh, how how many people might ask for ask for referral. And my my point be before in the like cold uh, cold messages uh, would be not to ask for a referral, like. I don't right. come to someone asking for something. Exactly. I ask for someone to talk about themselves and their exactly. path and their yeah. lessons. And <laughs> I feel that this is a very different take on this. And maybe after I'm, I can ask because I, I believe that uh, nothing to lose. And right. what you mentioned yeah. about um, is this person willing to help me or not? Personally, I don't even think about it in the way that I think long term. And so if I'm in the search of something, I believe that I'm not, uh, I believe that I can predict enough what others' actions can uh, just will be. And I just For like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think uh, uh, where I was coming from was just an evaluation of what your, where your relationship with them is at and mm. what kind of rapport you have. Okay. So, yeah. But awesome. yeah, like at the end of the day, pretty unpredictable. Humans awesome. are just unpredictable. Oh, that's cool. I hope it helps uh, some people listening to this part. If maybe you're in a, in a recruiting process, uh, speaking hundreds, and you have uh, many uh, tips to pick uh, from uh, from uh, this, uh, la- this last minutes. Uh, going to the um, um, uh, DevRail role. So could you maybe share a bit with us uh, about this role and like... Um, how did you end up going for 
something like that. And I know that DevRel, uh, Developer Advocate, is very different for a lot of companies. So I'm very curious to know what does it look like at MongoDB, if you can sure. talk about it. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. First, talking about what my role is, right? Um, they, they call me something called AI specialist. So they want me to be pretty much laser focused on AI, of course, but very specifically, they want me to focus on common use cases or must win use cases for either our customers or just the developer community in general. Like uh, just look at what our customers are asking for and build like these end-to-end solution stories uh, based on that intel. Another part of it is also like positioning the company as a player in the AI space, right? So that that would happen through the kind of content written or spoken content that I put out in terms of uh, insights posts. Like this is my take as an AI specialist at MongoDB on how to build a production grade RAG application or just like these yeah. insights into different different aspects of building AI applications. That's a big part of it. Um, and I think the third pillar of my role specifically uh, is enablement. So more hands-on trainings and workshops for uh, MongoDB developers in terms of, uh, yeah, like creating tutorials and these end-to-end um, demos, workshops, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my role. Um, let's see, what else did you ask me? Uh, yeah, how did yeah. I land? How yeah. did I get into DevRel? Yeah. Um, like I said, Likewise. on my like when I was a data scientist, I also enjoyed uh, writing and speaking, and I was pretty technical when it came to the kind of content I write. So this seemed like a tra- natural transition, at least the the specific role at MongoDB because. Mm-hmm it sounded like I would continue to be a technical contributor, uh, mm-hmm. which was really important for me. Uh, because like you said, right? And uh, even I had spoken to a lot of people um, at other organizations where DevRel is more about awareness and more community focused, which is great. And maybe that's the need of the organization, but uh, my needs were something else. Like my, it was very important for me to be hands-on with code, uh, and this DevRel opportunity seemed like a good fit. Hmm. Awesome. Awesome. I think we've covered uh, a lot of um, a lot of very interesting topics. So I think I have three more questions. Um, if that sounds cool with you. Uh, sure. yeah. The first one being uh, like tips for everyone who is listening in their career. It can be like for young professionals, but uh, maybe more advanced professionals. If you have any uh, any recommendations on that. The second one will be um, if you have a message for the Let's Talk community uh, and also like where can people reach out? And the third will be a question for the next guest. That being said, <laughs> first one, do you have tips for everyone who is listening career-wise, um, starting out or maybe more advanced? Sure. Uh, so I think for starting out, I can't stress enough on just building that trusted network. Like I know it's, a lot of people find it draining, exhausting to just like go network and ask strangers questions, but it's worth it. Like invest time in that if you can. For people who are more advanced, uh, I would say like 
don't um, don't be afraid to take risks. Like if something is calling out to you, like go for it. It's worth it. I think at least for me, the day I stop learning or feeling like I'm making an impact, like it's end game for me. But yeah, I think especially where the world uh, is going right now, I, I can at least speak of the AI space, like just being able to adapt and change with the needs of organizations or of the community in general is super important. And I think just becoming more flexible, adaptable is a huge skill uh, right now. Um, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. Did you want to add another another tip? No, I was just thinking of what else you asked me, but if yeah, you want to... Yeah, I know. So like the second point is where can people find more about you? Like, do you have a blog? Do you have like, do they follow, can they follow you on LinkedIn? Where can people know more about you? Yeah, I think I'm mostly, uh, like I'm not that uh, social in terms of like social media, but mm-hmm. uh, every once in a while I'll drop in on LinkedIn and say stuff. So maybe there, but now that my role officially pushes me to get out there more, uh, you'll start seeing more of me on like MongoDB developer outlets, YouTube and things like that. Awesome. Well, uh, we're looking for that uh, 2.B question. Uh, do you have a message based on this entire discussion? And it can be anything. It can be personal, professional. But do you have a, a message for the Let's Talk AI community? Yeah, I think since it's Let's Talk AI, I'm going to say it's a really exciting time to be in AI. Lots of great research coming out every day, but also lots of fluff. It's overwhelming. So, um, yeah, definitely experiment and evaluate being a big part of it before making decisions. But yeah, most importantly, like, have fun, I guess. Awesome. I really enjoy this message. If for everyone who are still listening at this point of this episode, thank you for making it to the end with us. Uh, big thank you for uh, being part of this journey where we learn more uh, from experts. Um, I hope that you had an amazing time. Feel free to like or subscribe if you feel like it and you enjoyed this content. Uh, provide thanks again for coming on the show. I had an amazing time and I wish you to have an amazing day. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed it.